Welcome to another episode of On Stage at Housing Works Bookstore Cafe, a bi-weekly podcast featuring highlights from some events at our downtown Manhattan bookstore. This week, we've got lots of poetry from our William Dickey Memorial Reading and our Salt and Stall Arts Colony Reading, plus a little bit of fiction from the Penn Literary Awards Showcase and Party in the Middle. I'm podcast producer Colin Drowen, and I'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. Enjoy! On April 13th, we hosted the William Dickey Memorial Reading. Here, Meryl Notches reads two poems by Dickey, plus the winning poem of the Broadside Contest. Then, Mark Doty reads one of his poems inspired by Dickey. The first poem I'm going to read is The Death of John Berryman. I'm sure most of you know that Berryman committed suicide by jumping off a bridge in Minnesota. The Death of John Berryman. Henry went over the bridge first. He always did. Then Mr. Interlocutor and Mr. Bones and the black-faced minstrels in their tambourines. You have to empty out the contents of before the person himself dies. The beard went over the edge and Stephen Crane and the never completed scholarly work on Shakespeare and faculty wives and a sheaf of recovery wards, white tiled in the blue shadows of the little hours. He loosened his necktie and the recurrent dream of walking underwater to the destined island. His mother went over in pearls. His father went over, his real father, whoever that was. He thought to go over with someone, hand in hand with Mistress Bradstreet, perhaps. But someone always preceded him. The news of his death preceded him. It hit the water with a fat splash, and the target twanged. When there was nothing to see or hear with, the silent traffic of bystanders wrapped in snow, his only body let itself loose, turned and waved before it went over to what it could never understand as the human shore. And um, we were talking about um, Dickey before this event, and he was never, he was a gay man, but he was never really out. I mean, he unfortunately grew up in a, in a time when it was not easy to come out. And I feel like this poem, Making Love, talks about the constraint of that, that part of his life, the difficulty of that part of his life. Making Love. Making Love, the mirror watches and imitates the white bodies as it tries to learn. All of the city is grouped in attitudes of observance. Its streets gravitate to a growing center. Everything tries, railway trains, even the philosophical stars, however unfitted. This is to say how dangerous making love is, because to become aware of one animate, intimate, is to lose, loosen the pictures on the walls into noisy participation. I thought it was only you. How we would tighten ourselves into a terse jewel. Instead, over the house, helicopters gather and breathe raggedly. Bread and its component parts jitter in the kitchen. Um, this is called Autobiography by Karen Schubert, and you can take a look at the broadside. It's copies of it up there.
I'm not married to autobiography, but we're lovers. This is my first lesbian relationship. I've been trying to awaken my inner lesbian for years, but until now, all I could muster was an artistic lust for the female figure. Autobiography is different, although she embarrasses me, won't let me tell the story the way I want to. She reminds me about the wine stain on the satin chair, forgotten Mother's Day cards, my fear of glass elevators. She makes fun of me, the gray touch, the gray tooth, and the way one eye squints shut when I laugh. She says beauty is symmetrical. I'm obsessed with autobiography. Call her late at night and leave message after message. I just want to hear her voice. I think she's two-timing me. I'm afraid she'll run off with the other woman. We fight, we make up, we go to our cafe, bookstore. Later, I'll write about it. When autobiography and I walk by people we know, they tremble. This is a poem of, of mine from this new book that has to do with the breaking of habit. And habit, you know, gets a, habit gets a bad rep. I mean, uh, Beckett says in his, his little book on Proust that habit is the ballast that chains the dog to its vomit. You know? Habit is the thing that makes, limits our perception, dulls our eyes so we, we can't see the world as it is. But um, habit is also, you know, makes things an awful lot easier, right? If you have routines, you can focus on the inner life. You don't have to worry about what you're going to order for breakfast because you know already, or you don't have to, how will I walk to work today? If you've made that decision, in some ways you're imaginatively freed. So, um, this is called, for reasons you'll see in a moment, This Your Home Now. For years, I went to the Peruvian barbers on 18th Street. Comforting, welcome. The full coat rack, three chairs held by three barbers, eldest by the window, the middle one a slight fellow who spoke an oddly feminine Spanish, the youngest last, red-haired, self-consciously masculine, and in each of the mirrors their children's photos, mildly smutty cartoons, postcards from Machu Picchu. I was happy in any chair, though I liked best the touch of the eldest, who'd rest his hand against my neck in a thoughtless, confident way. 10 years, maybe. One day, the powdery blue steel shutters pulled down over the window and door, not to be raised again. They'd lost their lease. I didn't know how at a loss I'd feel. This haze around what I'd like to think the sculptural presence of my skull requires neither art nor science. But two haircuts on 7th, one in Dublin, nothing right. Then, I hear my friend Marie laughing over my shoulder, saying, in your poems, there's always a then, and I think, is it a poem without a then? Dull early winter, back on 18th, up spiraling red in a cylinder of glass, and just below the line of sidewalk, a new sign, Willie's Barbershop. Dark hallway, glass door, and there's presumably Willie. When I tell him I used to go down the street, he says in an inscrutable accent, this your home now. Puts me in a chair, ask me what I want, and soon he's clipping and singing with the radio's Latin dance tunes. That's when I notice Willie's walls, though he's been here all the week, spangled with images hung in barbershops since the beginning of time. Lounge singers, near celebrities, random boxers, Italian boys, Puerto Rican, caught in the hour of their beauty, though they'd scowl at the word. Victors cheering over a trophy won for what? Frames already dusty, at slight angles, here, it's clear, forever. Are barbershops like aspens, 
each sprung from a common root 10,000 years old, sons of one father, flashing fighters and starlets to shield the tenderness of their hearts. Our guardian Willie defies time. His chair, our ferry boat. And we go down in the trance of touch and the skull buzz drone singing cranial nerves in the direction of peace. And so I understand that in the back of this nothing building on 18th Street, I found that door ajar before, in daylight, when it shouldn't be, some forgotten bulb left burning in a fathomless shaft of my uncharted nights. The men I have outlived await their turns, the fevered and wasted, whose mothers and lovers scattered their ashes and gave away their clothes. 20 years, and their names tumble into a numb well, Though in truth, I have not forgotten one of you, may I never forget one of you, these layers of men arrayed in their no longer breathing ranks. Willie, I have not lived well in my grief for them. I have lugged this weight from place to place as though it were mine to account for. And today I sit in your good chair in the sixth decade of my life. And if your back door is a threshold of the kingdom of the lost, yours is a steady hand on my shoulder. Go down into the still waters of this chair and come up refreshed, ready to face the avenue. Maybe I do believe we will not be left comfortless. After everything comes tumbling down or you tear it down and stumble in the shadow valley trenches of the moon, there's still a decent chance at a barbershop, salsa on the radio, the instruments of renewal wielded effortlessly. And who'd have thought for you Willie, if he is Willie, fusses much longer over my head than my head merits, which allows me to be grateful without qualification. Could I be a little satisfied? There's a man who loves me, our dogs, 15, 20 more good years if I'm a bit careful. That's what I haven't written. It's sunny out, though cold. After I tip Willie, I'm going down to Jane Street to a coffee shop I like, and then I'm gonna write this poem. Then. On April 15th, we celebrated the Penn Literary Awards with a showcase and party. Here, Katie Kitamura reads an excerpt from the beginning of her novel, Gone to the Forest. The house sits by the edge of the river. It is big, a house with multiple wings and rooms and a veranda running along three sides. Outside this giant house, there is a double row of trees planted by the old man's natives. Tom sits in the dirt beneath one of these trees, where there is shade from the blistering sun. Tom's father was among the first of the white settlers. Forty years ago, the old man arrived in the country and claimed his piece of land. 100,000 acres down a 10-mile spine running through the valley. The land belonged to no one, and then it belonged to him, a stake driven into the soil. The old man swallowed up the land and filled it with native hands. The money and good fortune came shortly after. The farm sits adjacent to the border, and from its perimeter, the neighboring country is visible. The parcel is big, and the soil arable, and there is also the river, which is wide and fast, clouded with sediment and sargasso weed. The old man picked the land for the river. It runs straight out to the sea. The carnivorous dorado swim through in herds, and purple hyacinths sprout on the surface. For many years, the old man used the land as a cattle farm. The vast acreage turned to pasture, the herd growing by the year, a small crop also harvested. Today, he runs a farm as a fishing resort for tourists who come from all parts of the world. 
The old man is imperious with the guests in the same way he is imperious with the servants. They don't seem to mind. They stay in the guest wing of the house and pay good money for the privilege. Tom manages the farm. He oversees the daily operation of the cattle pasture, the fields, the river and the house. It is a great deal for one man to handle, but Tom is good at his job. He is good with the fluctuations of the land, which he is able to read correctly. Also the domestic affairs of the house and kitchen. Tom is diligent and has an eye for detail, in which he often takes comfort. He is the old man's, old man's first and only son. This means that one day he will inherit the farm. He will run the fishing resort and that will be the whole of his life. Tom can see no other kind of future. It is the only horizon before him, but he has no sense of its constriction. Tom has a passion for the land. It is the one thing he knows intimately. He burrows into it, head down in the dirt, and cannot imagine a life beyond it. Therefore, Tom sits beneath his tree. He presses his limbs into the soil as if they would grow roots. He sits in idleness. It is the tempo of this place. It overtakes him. He has no resistance to it. It is true Tom is a good manager, but as that is almost despite himself. Fundamentally, he is lazy. His father is different. His mother was different. His mother was like his father. She was not from this place. She was nervous, set to a temper that was out of pace with the draw of the land. It could not be changed. His mother came 10 years after his father and left 10 years ago, dead from exhaustion. They shipped her body back across the sea in a bare pine box at the request of her family. The life had been too much for her. His father said that the moment she set foot on the land. Nobody was surprised when she died. It took her 20 years to do it, and they were surprised it took her so long. She had been dying the whole time. She was half dead when she gave birth to him, and after that, died by increments. Tom remembered her sometimes. Early on, she had been diagnosed consumptive. That was a disease from a long time ago, an illness that no longer existed, but it still managed to kill her. She ate up her body. In the last years of her life, she burned through her organs and limbs. She combusted inside her skin, like she was in a hurry and couldn't wait anymore. Sometimes, he could smell the scent of her decay, lifting high off her body. That was his mother. She gave birth to him, and he slithered from between her legs and out into the land in dust. From the start, he was of this place. He was country-born and at home with the bramble. For the first year, Celeste nursed him at her tit. She held him while he scratched and suckled. Celeste had a son exactly Tom's age, Jose. She raised the two boys together, Jose's father being nowhere in sight. However, the two boys did not grow up like brothers. Jose was healthy, indefatigable, stubborn, even as an infant. Tom, on the other hand, was not a strong child. He had a skin condition that weakened his body and stunted his growth. Dry scales grew at his elbows and knees. Left alone, Tom would peel long strips of skin from his body. When Celeste discovered the raw length, she would take him to the river and press handfuls of mud against his wounds. Covered in river sludge, he was left out in the sun to heal. Between themselves, the natives called him Lizard Boy. His father blamed his mother for the boy's condition, but Tom always believed the weakness to be his own. In the same way, the land was seated deep inside him. It was a congenital disorder of sorts. He also knew the weakness meant that he would not die like his mother. It was self-preserving. He retreated into his weakness and lay down inside it. It was a thing of comfort in a life that was not, on the whole, filled with comfort. And on April 16th, alumni from the Salton Stall Arts Colony shared some of their work. 
Here, Alana Bell, Emily Brandt, Tina Chang, and David Groff share a poem each. Blackout, New York City, 2003. My mother calls to tell me it's her fault. Her black, black thoughts the cause of this city going dark. Each window a blank eye in the stone. The lost bodies below swarming hot concrete. Black as Hitler, she whispers through the wire, and the steam rises from a grate in the street. I tell her how last night on our block, folks gave away beer and ice cream and all the meat they could cook, and for the first time in years, the Milky Way was visible. I did that, she asks, from somewhere behind her eyes where the light dims and doesn't quite go out. Man revises nature. All tents should be silk. I can't oil canvas shoes anymore, I've had it. When I come back to the city, everything is the same. The men all wear beards again and the girls are cutting their hair or braiding it. Everyone is baking, especially the muscular ones. (laughs) Flowers are expensive for a reason. All the lines radiate from the center. We have a lot to learn as a species. Our ancestors crossed very cold spaces. If it were us, we would have surely died. Everyone comes over and walks down spiral steps. Sometimes someone ends up bleeding. The piano hasn't been tuned for three years, but the man who tunes it has small hands, so we will be okay. Some strings go AWOL and others march in line. I was in a bell choir when I was a child. That nun could play, but couldn't sing. Me neither. Many nuns have survived very violent fathers. Boys like to stick with other boys and girls like to stick with girls until that stops. Girls like to be the only girl in the room more or less than boys like to be the only boy. These truths are harmful to certain kids. I never wanted to be a girl, but not for the reasons you think. Boys were allowed to bike ride with their shirts off. My husband is really good at doing flips like seriously good at this. It makes me very nervous. The tension of the diving board and the little ones say, wow. There is an inflatable shark on the loose and only one raft not big enough for us all. Soon the pool guys will come and find us bleached here. The pool guys are always guys. I don't know if their work is skilled or unskilled labor. I've never had a pool. I lied to colleagues in an icebreaker and said I know how to tune pianos. And when asked what tools I used, I said an awl and a really good ear. People who don't know awls believed me and I won that game easily. We were in a townhouse in Manworld. We were in a gilt gold frame. My grandfather left an abalone table and a statue of some princess. The carved legs were wobbly, and everything collapsed in the middle of the night. Plaster dust all over everywhere. There were no survivors. My grandpa loved ornate things, a man of taste. Men are always reinventing taste. When I found my taste buds for the first time, I thought I was dying. Maybe kids will start growing teeth from their post-gender throats. We agree that something has to change this poem. It's called Fury. My son rubs his skin and names it brown, his expression gleeful this morning, 
Last night, there were reports that panthers were charging through the streets. I watch from my seat in front of the television, a safe vista. I see the savannah. Sometimes, though, my son wakes to a kind of nightmare. He envisions words on the walls and cannot shake them. He tries to scratch them away or runs out of the room, but the words follow him. None of it makes any sense, but it's the ghost of his fear that I fear. What is a safe distance from the thoughts that pursue us, and what if the threat persists despite our howling? Buildings collapse. A woman falls down the stairs and lands on her back with only one eye open, half awake to her living damage. I think my son senses what is happening on the street, his heart fiercely tethered to mine. I know the world will find him and tell him the history of his skin. Harm will come searching for him and pour into him its scorching mercury, its nails, its bitter breath against his boyhood skin, still smelling of milk and wonder. Somewhere, the panthers are running, starting fires fueled by a distinct hunger. Somewhere, there's a larger fire, a pyre stoked by the fury of all that we have come to understand, all that we could have done but did not. Its flame licked the undersides of the earth. It propagates, needing only a frenzy of air to fan it to inferno. I'll call that the forest. The deep woods are ahead, and if the panthers could just reach it. If I told you that all of this happens at night, you wouldn't believe me. If I told you all of this happens in the future, always the future, you would continue following the scent you would only describe as smoke. I'll call that justice. But aren't we talking about mercy and its dark twin? Isn't that what is pummeling history in the side as I write this? Isn't it the thorn and the taser? Isn't it the chokehold and the gold arm of vengeance? I say it from my mouth, and when it spills forth, it lands on the ground in a pool of light, reflecting back at me the one true blasphemy. Love and 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 love is crowding the street, and it needs only air, and it lives over there in the distance, burning. Lost April. The pain of needing to pay so much damn attention devolves into deficit distraction with melting gutters revealed, the gossip of pigeons, and the rats lounging like bankers lunching in the sun that shrugs into my squint as the planet tilts, my eyelids veined violet with it, the mirrored sunglasses of stuff that keeps me from plunging my hand into the budded world's wound, its flesh quick and provisional, its weeping redress a summons to roll away the stone and show a pulse before everything appears. Dead mom's birthday, dead Ron's 45th, the early fruit, the litter spilling out. Thank you for listening, and thank you to the staff and volunteers at Housing Works Bookstore that make these events possible, as well as our event partners and attendees and anyone who's ever bought a book, a beer, a sandwich, or anything else at our bookstore. Housing Works is a healing community of people living with and affected by HIV-AIDS. Our mission is to end the dual crises of homelessness and AIDS through relentless advocacy, the provision of life-saving services, and entrepreneurial businesses which sustain our efforts. You can visit the bookstore in person at 126 Crosby Street in downtown New York and online at housingworksbookstore.org.
You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and more, and keep up with the bookstore through our online newsletter. We'll be back with another episode every other week. Thanks again for listening.